0: In the city of Cairo, Egypt, there are two very different monuments to two very different men, both of whom died at a very young age. One monument is in the Egyptian National Museum. It's the King Tut exhibit. King Tutankhamen died when he was 17 years old and the wealth that was packed into his tomb just staggers the imagination. He was uh, buried in a coffin, a sarcophagus made out of solid gold. There were solid gold chariots in the burial chamber. There were thousands and thousands of other golden artifacts. His tomb contained literally tons of gold. And the Egyptians believed in an afterlife in which you could enjoy your earthly wealth, your earthly treasures. But when the burial chamber was discovered in 1922, all of that treasure was still there. Nothing had been touched for over 3,000 years. Now contrast that to a very different monument, one to a man named William Borden. Borden Uh, you won't find his monument in a museum. You have to go down a back Cairo alley to an overgrown plot of grass. It's a graveyard for American missionaries. It's a simple tombstone mark that says William Borden, 1887 to 1913. Borden was a graduate of Yale and was an heir Of great family wealth. You've probably heard of Borden. And uh, much, much wealth. But instead of living a life of luxury, Borden rejected that in order to pursue his life's passion, which was bringing the good news of Jesus Christ uh, to others. He invested, he gave away, in fact, he refused even to buy a car for himself and instead gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. And when he himself went as a missionary to Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. His epitaph describes his love for the kingdom of God and for Muslim people and ends with this inscription, Apart from faith in Christ... There is no explanation for such a life. Now, which of those two men do you think lived a more successful life? Well, it really depends how you define success, doesn't it? If you judge by the appearances of their graves, King Tut wins hands down. Do you suppose, though, either one of those men cares about what their graves look like now? Where are they? King Tut tried to hold on to his earthly wealth and discovered you can't take it with you. William Borden converted his earthly wealth into heavenly wealth and sent his treasure on ahead where he now enjoys eternal satisfaction in the presence of the true king. And really, if you think about it, what are... 17 or 25 or even 100 years of earthly wealth compared to an eternity of heavenly wealth. William Borden made the infinitely better investment. We're continuing our series called God's Treasure Map, which is about God's directions for gaining eternal treasure. Jesus warned us, He warned us not to waste our lives seeking treasures that don't last, but instead to pursue treasures that never fail. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus said, do not store up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Please notice what that last line is telling us. Look at that. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's telling us that our hearts follow treasure. Jesus is telling us to put our treasures in heaven because that's where he wants our hearts to be. You know, the the scriptures that we're looking at in this series, this is not about God wanting our money. And if that's kind of, you know, your perspective as you come in here, you need to rethink this. This is not about God wanting our money. As We're going to see God doesn't need our money at all. But he does want something far, far more valuable. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. And that's why storing up treasures in heaven is so important. Because our hearts follow our treasure. Do you want to really care about something? Do you want to really be interested and care about something? Then make a significant financial investment in that thing. And your heart will follow your treasure and you'll care about it a whole lot more than you do now the reason god wants us the the reason god cares about our money is because he cares about our hearts take a look at a quote by author randy alcorn this really struck me he says it like this god isn't looking just for donors those who stand outside the cause and dispassionately consider acts of philanthropy giving he's looking for disciples immersed in the causes they give to he wants people so filled with a vision for eternity that they wouldn't dream of not investing their money time and prayers where they will matter the most I read that and I thought, okay, I need to ask myself, am I living like a disciple or like a donor? I mean, what is my attitude toward the work of God's kingdom? This this incredible rescue mission of God to, to seek and save the lost. to to turn rebels into worshipers, to transform His enemies into His children, to fill this world with people who are passionate for God's love and truth and justice. Do, Do I relate to this just incredible, massive, global cause? Do I relate to that? as a disciple, as one who's in it, who's involved, who's participating, who's contributing, who is working and praying and giving to make it happen? Or do I act more like a donor who's on the outside looking in, and, you know, evaluating whether or not the cause is worthy of any of my hard-earned money. If we really want to be disciples, then we need to think and we need to act like disciples when it comes to treasure, when it comes to handling money and possessions. And We need, you know, we need to think about what it's like to handle that as disciples instead of donors. So that's what I want to look at today. I want to look at some directions from God's Word that will help us live as disciples, as a disciple, not a donor. All right, first, first instruction. If you, if you want to live as a disciple, not as a donor, you've got to remember that it's not your money. Remember that it's not your money. According to the Bible, we are not the true owners of anything we possess. We manage our stuff for its real owner. And the one who really owns our stuff is God. Check it out. Psalm 24.1 The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Pretty exhaustive. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Deuteronomy 8.17. You may say to yourself, well, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And God himself says in Psalm 50, verse 12, If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Pretty clear? All right, let's just see if we've got it. Now, if God owns everything, if God owns everything, then what do you and I own? Nothing. You see that implication there? We own nothing. We own not one single thing. Now, I know, according to the laws of this world, we own, we can own things. But you know what those laws really are telling us? What those laws are really telling us is which things we're responsible to manage for God. Yeah, I've got a, in our safe deposit box, I've got a, car title, right? Title my car, and, you know, according to the laws of the state, that tells me I own the car. But, if we really think it through, from an eternal perspective, what that title is telling me is I'm the one who's responsible to see that that car gets used the way God wants it to be used. That's really what that's telling me. And this... This, I mean, this is just life-changing truth, if, if you grasp it, if we really get this lodged in our heads. I mean, if, if God owns everything, then everything we have belongs to Him. All of my wealth is God's wealth. All of my stuff is God's stuff. All of my money is God's money. Not just 10% of it, all of it. It's all His. And if that's true, think about this. If that's true, that means that every spending decision I make is a spiritual decision. Every one of them. Because every time I'm spending money, I'm spending God's money. God has entrusted to me a portion of his wealth. And my job is to manage it according to God's priorities, God's desires, God's values. There is a big difference in thinking between donors and disciples. See, a a donor thinks like this. A donor thinks, how much of my money should I give to God? That's how a donor thinks. A disciple thinks very differently. A disciple thinks, how much of God's money should I be spending on myself? It's a very different question. And it doesn't come naturally to us. We we naturally are wired to think like donors, not disciples. So that means we've got to keep reminding ourselves, and we need to remind one another that it's really not our money. It's really not. It's God's money. All right, second direction. To live like a disciple, not like a donor, live in light of your coming audit. Live in light of your coming. Audit. Do we act differently when we know we're going to be audited? <laughs> yes, we do. Um, oh, why do we have audits anyway? Why do, you know, companies, government agencies, whatever, why, why do they have audits? Well, they have audits to make sure that the people who are handling the money are handling it properly because It's not their money, right? I mean, people get so upset, so worked up when somebody is discovered to be misusing their money, right? I mean, it doesn't matter whether we're talking a business, uh, a government agency, a pension fund, uh, you name it. We don't like it when people misuse our, our money. So, you know, if somebody makes bad decisions and he loses his own shirt, well, that's his problem. But if he makes bad decisions and loses my shirt and your shirt, then that's our problem. And if the reason he lost his shirt is because he lied and he cheated, then it's not just a problem, it's a crime. And we think, well, people shouldn't get away with that. People should be held accountable. True. And you know what? They will be. They will be. Regardless of whatever earthly auditors or those who are, you know, legal authorities here on earth do, they will one day have to give an account to the one who really owns it all. They're going to have to answer to God for every cent. And guess what? So will you. And so will I. Every cent. Because our money is not our money. It's God's money. And one day we're going to have to give an account for how we handled God's money. Romans 14:10. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat, as it is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now that's not just talking about a financial accounting, but it's included. It's all in there. We are all facing an audit for every spending decision that we make in this life because it's not our money. So is that audit going to be a pleasant experience, or is that going to be an unpleasant experience? It's really up to us, isn't it? I mean, if we are spending God's money on God's priorities, the things God says are important, then it's going to be a very joyful experience to hear the Lord Jesus say, well done, you good and faithful servant. So, clearly, we've got to know what God's priorities are. And that brings us to uh, the third instruction here. You know, thinking about what, what does God want us to do with our money, His money? All right, to live as a disciple, not a donor. Don't just make a living, make a difference. Don't just make a living, make a difference. Now, think about this. God has entrusted some of his wealth. He's put it in my hands. And and he's put some of his wealth in your hands. And because he's done that, that means we have the power to make a difference, for good or for bad. God has chosen to do his work through people. By delegating to people a measure of His authority. It's just just as if God put our names on His bank account. And we now have the authority to spend God's money. And He's authorized us to spend His money to accomplish His purposes. Now, one one of his purposes is to meet our needs. In fact, the Bible is very clear that we are to take care of our families. We are to meet our needs. And so we have the authority, so to speak, as God put our name on his his account, we have the authority to set our own salaries, basically. We get to do that. We get to draw funds from God's wealth to pay for our needs, to meet our living expenses, to make a living. Well, how much should that be? See, that's one of the most important decisions we can make in life. Because most of the time, God gives us more than we absolutely need. And you know, God is very gracious. He's very gracious. He delights in giving us things to enjoy take a look at first timothy six seventeen. it says command those who are rich in this present world now don't read that and go okay well that's not talking about me don't just think bill gates here what does it mean to be rich in this present world it means to have more than you need more than just to you know subsist and most of us fall into that category, rich in this present world. Okay, so command them not to be arrogant, because being rich can make you arrogant, or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, now look at it, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So using Some of God's money for our enjoyment is fine, as long as we're putting our hope in Him and not in money and stuff to give us true happiness. It's where our hope is, and that will be reflected in whether or not we're grateful, whether or not we see all of this as gifts from God and appreciating it and so on. But, okay, let's be careful because that's not the end of what it teaches here. There's another verse we've got to look at. See, we affluent Americans can get really carried away with this, you know, enjoyment thing. So let's look at the next verse, 1 Timothy 6.18, Command them, that is the rich in this present world, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So that means that when God blesses us and gives us more than we need, He has more in mind than simply blessing us. Look at 2 Corinthians 9.8. This is right in the middle of a passage on uh, money and giving, and it says this. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in or have an abundance for what? Every good work. So look at what this is saying. This is saying that when God causes His grace to abound to us, and we have an abundance beyond what we need. The reason He does that is not so we can keep ramping up our standard of living and become more and more luxurious. He gives us the abundance for doing every good deed. Good works. We choose our standard of living, and then we use what's beyond that to accomplish God's other purposes, to make a difference. See, that's how we make a difference. God has not blessed us in America so that we can simply keep lavishing luxury on ourselves. That's not why he's done it. And if that's what we're thinking, oh, isn't it great that God's given me so much? I can just, I can just live so luxuriously here. He's not done it for that reason. He's blessed us so we can make a huge difference in this world for the sake of his name. I mean, if you have more money than you need to live on, if you have more than you need to live on, then you literally have the power, because God gave it to you, you literally have the power to change lives forever. We can keep hungry people from starving to death. We can build homeless people a house. You can provide sick people with medical treatment. And you can provide lost people the opportunity to know God through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You can do that with God's money. And if you say, how? There are so many ways. And just so many ways. So many things. We're only limited by our creativity, our lack of imagination. I mean, sponsor a child through Compassion International World Vision. I really think that every family that can't afford to sponsor a child ought to do that. You can change a kid's life forever by doing that. Not just to meet his... Uh, physical needs, and his need for education, but his need to know God. You uh, you can sponsor a missionary. There are lots of them. Find one who's doing something that you're excited about and make a substantial contribution because I guarantee you where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And most of them are always underfunded. Support the church. Give to the church because the church supports several missionaries, several key ministries that meet needs in jesus name and almost all of these are underfunded man we would love to remedy that we would love to be able to bring all of that up to where it should be what a difference the church in america could make if we would all get serious about this what a difference right now and this has been consistent for decades god please change this the average evangelical Christian, what do I mean by that? I mean the Christian who claims to believe that the Bible is the word of God, who claims to believe that people need to hear, they need to know about Jesus Christ. The average evangelical Christian gives only 2 to 3% of his salary to all charity combined including the church. 2 to 3%? And what that tells me is there a lot of Christians who don't get it. They don't get it. They're thinking like donors. They're not thinking like disciples. They're on the outside looking in. They either do not realize or they don't care about the difference they could be making. Now, just to help us get this, I want to show a clip from the film Schindler's List. Oscar Schindler was a German businessman in World War II who saved the lives of 1,100 Jews from being executed in concentration camps. Basically, by em- employing them in his factory and by paying massive bribes to German officials. It cost him a lot of money to do what he did. Now, this clip comes at the end of the war as Schindler is saying goodbye to his factory workers whose lives he has saved. And he is suddenly overwhelmed by the wish that he had done so much more. Let's take a look. of you look at them if I made more money <laughs> I <laughs> threw away <laughs> so much money <laughs> you have no idea if I just there will be generations because of what you did I didn't do enough Where did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. This pin. Two people. This is gold. Two more people. It would have given me two for at least one would have given me one, one more. One more person. Person, stand for this. I could have come. One more person. And I didn't. And I, I, I didn't. what's a gold pen compared to a human life now I realize our circumstances are very different but it's still true That the way we spend money can make a huge difference. Even a life or death difference. I want to get that now. I want to understand that now. I want to live it now. Not figure it out when it's too late to make a difference. Let's make the difference now. Don't just make a living, make a difference. One more direction, to live like disciples instead of donors, give all the credit to the grace of God. The grace of God is the only reason we can make a difference. And I'm not talking here about just some phony, you know, false humility that says, oh yes, it's all just because of God's grace, all that I do when deep down inside, you know, we're proud because we think, well, really, it's my generosity that's making all the difference here. No, I'm talking about actually, genuinely realizing the truth that apart from God graciously giving us everything we have, we would have neither the ability nor the desire to give. It's grace. Last time I said that using earthly treasure for heavenly purposes is not some kind of grim duty. It's not some kind of painful sacrifice. It's a privilege. It is a privilege. There's a passage in the book of 1 Chronicles when King David has been collecting an offering from the people of Israel to build a temple. And so they put out the word and people bring all of this stuff. And when he he looks at all of the people have given. This is what he prays. He says, but who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. See, that's the truth. God lets us spend his money so that we can be generous, and experience more and more of his grace. Because when we manage God's money, God's way, we're the ones who benefit. We really are. Look, look what Jesus said in Acts 20, 35. The Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And to really make that work, And to understand it, you've got to know what the word blessed means. It means happy. It is a happier thing to give than to receive. It brings more joy to you to give than to receive. So that's that's how it works. God gives that we can give and experience the grace, the joy of giving. When I was a kid, occasionally my grandmother would take me to church, Pasadena, California. My grandmother literally was a little old lady from Pasadena. <laughs> and once in a while she'd take me to church with her, and every time she did, she would give me some money to put in the offering plate when I came by. Because she wanted me to begin to experience the joy of giving, even though. It wasn't my money. And you know what? It's still not my money. It still isn't. All the money that I give, even though I've earned it, gone to work and earned it, all the money that I give is God's, and he gives it to me so I can give it to him, so I can use it for his purposes, so I can experience joy. That's grace. That's grace. Grace isn't just the gift of salvation, putting your trust in Jesus Christ and receiving eternal life. It's all of grace, living it out. It all comes from God, and it's a free gift, and we give because he's given to us. You've heard that old saying, put your money where your mouth is? We could rewrite that according to what Jesus has told us when he said, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We could rewrite that and say it like this. Put your money where you want your heart to be. Put your money where you want your heart to be. If you want your heart to be all in to God's kingdom work, if you want to be all in to the only cause that truly matters in the long run, If you want to be a participant, not a bystander, if you want to be a player, not a spectator, if you want to be a difference maker and not an onlooker, then make up your mind to think and live and act like a disciple and not a donor. William Borden, that 25-year-old missionary who's buried in Cairo, who invested his family fortune and ultimately his own life in sharing the love and truth of Jesus Christ with others, he wrote three brief statements in his Bible that really sum up his life's perspective. This is the perspective of a disciple, not a donor. His three statements. No reserves. No retreats. No regrets. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Help us, Father, see through all of the confusion, all of this in our culture that wealth is all about us having all that we want help us see through that deception and see it see the truth and father give us the grace to discover what it means to to be a disciple, to truly live as a follower of Jesus with our money as well as with our our songs on Sunday morning and our our, uh, Bible study, but actually living it out and laying up treasure in heaven and not here on earth. Father, there's such a difference we can make and I pray that you will help us see that not as a duty or a sacrifice but as a great privilege pray you'd help us today to uh, begin to make the decisions and the choices to spend your money for your glory and for our good